Happy Father's Day to all you fathers and father figures and grandfathers and grandfather figures out there. Now, I don't know if you remember, but on Mother's Day, I preached on God, our Father. And now on Father's Day, I'm going to start our series on Esther, a woman. So I think it uh, works itself out in the end, right? Now, as as fathers, uh, as men, as women, as mums, as humans, we all want to leave a legacy. We read the stories of heroes and giants from the past whose stories we still tell. And then we look at our own lives and wonder, what, if any, legacy are we going to leave? Sometimes it feels like life is just one episode of chaos after another, and we wonder how can we carve out time in the middle of this high-speed chase of life to etch out some meaning, some legacy, some spiritual heirloom to pass on to the next generation. We even look at the past few months. Uh, once, once the dust has, once the, once the dust has settled, uh, we ask, what, what will be the legacy of this lockdown time? How will it have changed us? How will it have transformed us or grown us? What of eternal value will spring from this season? And then we expand our field of vision to include our whole lives. And we ask, what of eternal value will spring from our time here on earth? How can we create meaning in our lives when it feels that we're simply responding to things that are outside of our control? How can we carve a legacy out of chaos? How can we carve a legacy from chaos? Now, this morning, we're going to launch our voyage into, um, into learning how to carve a legacy out of chaos. Um, and we will be doing this by learning how to find God on the pages of our lives. I mean, so often it feels like God is absent from the pages of our lives, right? And when God is absent, all that we're left with is chaos. It seems like it's just us against the world. And those times when God seems absent can be really, really hard and lonely and heartbreaking. But friends, as we will find, these are the times uh, when real growth happens. When we actually find out after the fact that God is doing deep renovation work in our souls. Because it's in these times when he feels absent that he wants us to reach out and search for him. And as we reach out, we are growing and stretching. And yes, we will find him. Even when he's not easy to see. And so we want to find him on the pages of our lives. Because that is the first step in carving a legacy from chaos. Now, in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, God makes a promise to the searching soul. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you. So if you are living through a season of God's silence, I encourage you to keep going. Faithfully seeking God with all your heart. The Jews had to wait through 400 years of silence until God sent Jesus. And the disciples had to wait in the upper room until God sent the Holy Spirit. 
And so God works in the waiting and God speaks in the silence. And sometimes the silence is actually one of the ways that God speaks to us. And when God is silent, it's because he wants us to look for him. He says in Jeremiah 29 verse 14, I will be found by you and will bring you back from captivity. I will, I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And sometimes these times of silence feel like exile. And in this verse, God promises that he will be found by his people even when they are in exile for their sin and he will restore them if they are repentant. He will bring them back home. Now to understand this exile referenced by Jeremiah, we need to back up to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 15 where God lays before his people a choice. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to to bow down to other gods and worship them, verse 18, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and, and possess. Now, of course, history shows us that God's people chose option two, to reject God's covenant love, and to turn away in rebellion. And over and over again, they sinned and sinned, and they rebelled and rebelled uh, uh, until there came a point when they reaped the consequences of their choices. Exile. Unrepentant sin always leads us into a state of exile from God. And the exile of the children of Israel actually took place in two movements. First, the ten northern um, kingdoms of Israel were um, exiled by, by the Assyrians in year 732, 732 BC. So let's call this exile one. Secondly, in year 586, the southern two remaining tribes of Judah were exiled by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. So the northern kingdom, northern ten tribes, year 732, exile one under the Assyrians, and southern kingdom, year 586 BC, exile two under the Babylonians who had conquered the Assyrians. Okay, then 47 years later, in year 539, under King Cyrus II, the, the, the Persians snuck in and they conquered uh, the Babylonians. So, so, so the Assyrians gave way to the Babylonians who gave way to the Persians. And then Cyrus, Cyrus the, um, the second, he then tells the Jews who were in captivity, who were in exile, that the exile is now over and that they can return to their homeland and they can start to rebuild. Okay? And this exile took place in two stages. 
Okay, the exile took place in two stages, and the re-entry now takes place in three stages. Let me say that again. The exile took place in two stages, and this re-entry now takes place in three stages. It's a bit like the reopening of Ontario, right? So stage one, the first group returns from Persia to, to, to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. Then it takes another 80 years for the second group to return under Ezra. And then finally, 26 years later, in year 432, the last group returns under Nehemiah. Okay? With me so far? So, so there are two exiles. First, the northern ten tribes, known as Israel, and then the southern two tribes, known as Judah. And then there are three empires, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and now the Persians. And then there are three re-entries, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But not everyone returned from exile. There were some who chose to stay. Now, we don't know why, but think about this. The Jews alive at the time of re-entry would have never known life in Israel or in Judah. They would have heard the stories, but they would have never seen, you know, the temple. They would have never seen a sacrifice. And so the question is, what happens? What, what happened to the Jews who chose not to return from exile to their ancestral homeland? And that's what the book of Esther addresses. Now, Esther as a book is set in the time in between re-entry one and re-entry two. And it was while King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, is ruler of the Persian Empire in which the Jewish homeland sits. Now, this Xerxes is the Xerxes who is featured in the movie 300. So let's read some of Esther one to help us find our bearings. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver, on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, here on this map... We can see the size of the Persian Empire while Esther was alive. It's massive. It goes from India in the east over to nearly Greece in the west. And then it goes from, from Egypt in the south up to uh, modern day um, Central Asia in the north. And Esther lived in Susa. 
which is there. And Susa was one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. Now, Esther is set at least 100 years after exile too, which means that, like I said, at this time, almost no one alive would remember life back in, back in Judah. Now, if you're a second generation Canadian, then you'll understand this. Yes, your parents were born outside of Canada and you might be ethnically that country, but this is the country here that, which is the only country that you've ever known. And so maybe it makes sense, right? Maybe we can understand why so many Jews didn't return home from exile. Because Susa, because Persia was all that they'd ever known. Now, it wouldn't be until Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of the city with the third re-entry group that the homeland would start to feel like home again. And so at this moment in time, in the book of Esther, for many of the Jews of Susa, the promised land was, in essence, a foreign country. Now, I love playing dot to dot with the Bible, join the dots with the Bible, seeing who was linked with whom. Now, for me, it makes the Bible come alive. So in the spirit of, of, of joining the dots, here's an interesting link, okay? King Xerxes was Esther's husband, as, as we will find out. Now, Artaxerxes was Xerxes' son from another wife. And Artaxerxes is the king who told his, his cupbearer, Nehemiah, that he could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah's king was Esther's stepson, which makes you wonder whether Artaxerxes heard stories about the Jewish homeland from his stepmom when he was a kid, right? These stories that get passed down from generation And it also means that Esther and Nehemiah may have lived in the city of Susa at the same time. And that means that Nehemiah may have lived through the events that we read about now in Esther. What? Crazy, eh? So now I've set the scene. Let's look at an overview of Esther. Through the next few weeks, uh, we will focus each week on a different main character, and we will track their story through Esther and learn some key uh, lessons for, for, for life from them. And so to help us establish in our minds who goes where, let's take a brisk run through Esther. Are you ready? Starting at chapter 1, and feel free to read with me as I sum up chapters 1 through chapter 10. Okay, so chapter one, King Xerxes is a drunken and an angry king who fires Queen Vashti because she won't come at his command and show herself off to his mates. He then makes an irrevocable law that every man should be the ruler of his, of his own household. Insecure much. Chapter two, he then holds a nationwide beauty pageant and a Jew called Mordecai and his orphaned cousin Esther hear about it. Now, all we know about Esther at this point is that she's super hot. Now, they agree to lie about the fact that she's a Jew, though we're not told why. She then goes into one year of spa and beauty treatments and it's finally her turn. She's into the audition stage of Persia's Got Talent which only has one judge, the king, King Xerxes. And there's only one thing which is being judged. Let's call it uh, nighttime gymnastics. 
And so Esther has her overnight audition. And apparently the judge happens to be super impressed with, with um, how she does. And Esther is made queen. Mordecai then happens to, to overhear two of Xerxes' guards planning to assassinate the king. Now, now, as I read on, I want you to be listening out for, for these words, happens to, because they are important. Okay, so Mordecai happens to overhear two of Xerxes' guards planning to assassinate the king. He then tells Esther, who happens to be his cousin, who then tells Xerxes, who happens to be married to her. And this patriotic act of Mordecai's happens to be recorded in the book of Annals and then happens to be promptly forgotten. Chapter 3. Haman, who happens to be a descendant of the Canaanites, the sworn enemy of the Jews, happens to be honored by Xerxes. Now, we don't know why, but everyone takes the king's cue and honors Haman. Everyone except Mordecai, who happens to refuse to honor Haman. Now, we aren't told why. Maybe it's because Haman is a Canaanite. Regardless, due to Mordecai's refusal to honor him, Haman makes the Jews out to be this these weird, freaky loners and happens to convince Xerxes to sign off on murdering the lot of them. This is now enshrined in the irrevocable law of the, of the Medes and the Persians, and everyone in the whole empire is, is informed about it. So, so far, this king, this powerful king, has been manipulated into misusing the law of the Medes and the Persians to, number one, subjugate women, and number two, um, plan a genocide. Isn't that awesome? Now, the date for this kill is set, and Xerxes and Haman then sit down for a drink, because it's been a long day. Hard work, right? Chapter 4, Mordecai learns about this impending slaughter, and he gets a message to Esther. Esther then writes back to him, if I go to be, if I go to the king without being summoned, I might die. Now, we've already seen the old queen get kicked out for not, uh, for not entering the king's presence when she was asked. So what would happen to a queen who enters the king's presence without being asked? Esther would rather not find out, which is understandable, right? Mordecai Mordecai then tells her um, very sensitively and carefully that if all the Jews die, then she will too. And then he says, what is the key verse of Esther? Esther chapter 4, 13 to 14. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Mordecai says to Esther, you happen to be in this position, Esther, where you can make a massive difference. Esther then calls the Jews to fast for three days, after which she goes into the king, knowing that she might be carried out in a casket. Chapter 5, she goes into the king and phew, he welcomes her in. He's glad to see her, which means that she lives and she gets to ask him a favor. And she says, can you and I have a meal with Haman? And the king says, why not? Haman is excited, and because this is a great, great invite, right? And uh, at this time, Haman has no idea that Esther is a Jew, so he thinks he's well in there with the royal family, right? Friends in high places. 
And then at this meal, Esther then says, hey, can we three meet again? Maybe tomorrow? How does that work for you? And Haman's on cloud nine, right? But then he leaves and he happens to see Mordecai and he gets angry again. And then his wife and friends happen to hear him moan and whine about Mordecai. And they happen to give him the advice that he should create a big 75 foot wooden stake to spear Mordecai on. And so he does. And this, you know, arts and crafts makes us feel better. And so after creating this, Mordecai's spirits rise. Chapter 6. The king can't sleep and happens to read through the annals. He happens to read the bit about Mordecai saving his life and he wants, wants to honor him. He then asks Haman, who happens to be just there at the right time, what he should do to honor someone that he wants to, um, that he wants to praise. And Haman happens to misunderstand and think that he's the one that the king wants to honor. And so he tells Xerxes all this amazing stuff like riding on a horse through the city with someone walking in front of you, shouting out how amazing you are. That's how you honor someone. And then Xerxes then happens to tell Haman to do this to Mordecai, which nearly gives Haman a heart attack. But he does it anyway. Chapter 7. Next day is Esther's second feast with Haman and with Xerxes, which picks Haman up, you know, again, because he's excited, only for him to find out that it's a setup, and Esther reveals herself as a Jew, and tells the king that someone is going to wipe out all of her people. And the king is so angry, and he says, who is this person? Now, Haman now knows what's coming his way. Esther points at Haman and says, this man. And in the cloud of rage, the king storms out of the room, tramps around the garden, probably saying some very unkingly words. Um, Haman realizes that all is lost, and so he throws himself onto Esther for mercy, only for the king to happen to walk in on this scene. Now, he thinks that Haman is, is trying trying on some funny business with his, with his wife, so he's even more angry. And at that moment, one of the king's eunuchs happens to chime in with this useful suggestion. On my way to work today, king, I saw this big spike that Haman had happened to have already made. How handy. And in a massive stroke of horrendous irony, Xerxes tells them to impale Haman on this spike. Chapter 8. Esther is given Haman's estates, and Mordecai is outed as her cousin and Jew, which now happens to be okay. It's, 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 it's cool to be a Jew. Then, then the king realizes that he's given the go-ahead for the wholesale slaughter of all of Esther's people across the whole of the empire, which includes those Jews who've already moved back into Jerusalem. Xerxes then makes a second law that cannot be revoked because he cannot revoke the first non-revocable law. So he needs to create a second non-revocable law to trump or to or to come alongside that first non-revocable law. And he tells the Jews to fight back against anyone who attacks them. Chapter 9. And so on the 13th day of, of the 12th month of Adar, the enemies of the Jews attack them across the empire, and the Jews fight back, and they win. And Haman's 10 sons are killed, and they're impaled as well. So they're killed 
and then they're impaled, which is nice. And then the Jews have this massive party called Purim, named after uh, the, the, the dice that Haman used to choose when the day of the planned genocide would be. And they agree as a nation, as a race, that they would do this every year. And Jews around the world still happen to observe Purim, which, which is amazing. Chapter 10. So to tie things up nicely, Mordecai has a, has a, has a massive feast similar to this feast that Xerxes had at the beginning, and he's promoted to second in, in the kingdom. Everyone loves him. The end. This sermon series is called Carving a Legacy from Chaos. Now, I felt God impress this sermon series on me a few weeks ago while I was listening to him in prayer. I felt that this was our time as a church for us to be looking at Esther carving a legacy from, from chaos. We could also have called it just as easily making lemonade out of life's lemons. During these next few weeks, we will be brought into the story of a people in exile, of a people who are undergoing punishment from God. And in the middle of this exile, when they wonder if God even loves them, whether he still cares for them, they will find themselves literally in a fight for their lives. Where is God in the middle of all this? And that really is the question. Where is God? Because if I'm honest, if you were to look through the book of Esther, you would struggle to see God. In fact, you wouldn't see him at all. And I'm not being funny. You literally wouldn't see him because in this book about God's people in the Bible, in God's book, which is the inspired word of God, God is not mentioned once. In the whole of the book of Esther, God is not mentioned once. Not once, not at all. There's no God, there's no Lord, there's no Yahweh, there's no, there's, there's no Jehovah, there's no angel, there's, there's no He with a, with a capital H. Not a word, not a peep. Where is God? Now, as I started this message, I said, how should we live in those times when it seems that God is absent from the pages of our lives? When it seems like it's just us and the world. And so as I read Esther and I read Karen Job's writing on, 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 on Esther, I was challenged to look for the invisible God, to listen for the silent God. And so as I wrap up this message and we start this series, I want to challenge you. Where do you see God in the story of Esther? Which of the what, which of the happened to moments where, where it seems that God is working? And friends, if you're going to see God in Esther, then you're going to have to read in between the lines. You're going to have to join the dots. You're going to have to be on the lookout. And as you read Esther and train yourself to look for his fingerprints within the pages of this book, I want to challenge you to look at your own life and to see where is God working? Where are the happened to moments in your life that have led you to this place where you are now? You see, in my book, in the book of Dan, I also have to look because my book is just like the book of Esther. God often does not appear on my pages with a big sign saying, here I am. He, he never speaks verbally to me with a voice saying, thus saith the Lord. That never happens. 
And I suspect that the book of your life is the same. And yet, like Esther, we are challenged with, with the, um, with the task of seeing the activity of a God who is invisible. Right? That, that line from that song, which we just sang, is so profound. Even when I don't see it, you're working. And that's the message of Esther. Because it's no accident that, 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 that the word God is entirely absent from the, from the book of Esther. God planned that because God wants us to look deeper. He wants us to join the dots and see his hand of providence at work in the pages of this book. And similarly, friends, he wants you to look, to look deeper and see his hand of providence at work in the ordinary moments of your life. He wants you to find him in the pages of your story. Friends, who knows that you have come to your position in this place, in this time, for such a time as this, right? Who knows? And just like in Jeremiah 20, 13, 29, 13, God gives you a promise. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you.